Geek Nerdery. next week this week talking the legend of zelda link to the past so maybe i mean i was gonna say the biggest episode we've done so far but it's only three but i mean i, I well, it is the biggest episode it's it's the third episode but we can say it's the biggest one and the next <laughs> can be the biggest one and you know i, I think this is going to be a big one for a while like it's i think when we were kind of debating what uh what to do on this episode it's like well screw it go big or go home right so damn right right now so yeah legend is out a link to the past uh developed by nintendo published by nintendo released for the super famicom in november of 1991 and the super nes in april of 92 so been a few years since this one came out but um i'm guessing you had it pretty early on i did i i can remember getting this um around my birthday my birthday is late april and um, ever since I had got the Super Nintendo at launch and it had the poster in there, you know, and it had the little screenshot of Zelda on there, I was just, I was so excited to get the game and I looked forward to it. And uh, Nintendo Power ran a special on it in March, I think it was, to kind of hype up the release in April. And I just, uh, I was so looking forward to it. Yeah, and mine, it, mine was, I got my Super Nintendo for Christmas in 92. Um, hmm. So I was a little bit late, you know, or a little bit after the actual release of the system. But for Christmas that year, I got um, the Super Nintendo and Link to the Past both. Nice. So and and that was still back in the back in the days where my parents pretended like my sister and I both liked the video games. So usually like the big Christmas present was a gift to both of us. And then we each got our own separate gifts. So the Super Nintendo was technically mine and my sister's. And then Zelda was my gift. But I mean let's be honest she i don't think she ever touched it so um did she end up getting a game for herself or? no she got like a leather jacket i think so <laughs> which is all she really cared about right right well at least i didn't give her like some shitty game like you know arrow the acrobat or you know, <laughs> baby's kids or something like that i guess no but speaking of shitty games so i mean we love telling the stories of our earliest memories of these and i i actually do have a little bit of a story with my first you know, link to the past adventure. Mm. So I got it that morning for Christmas, lost my mind, was so excited to play this. But unfortunately, the family had to go out of town that day for the weekend for Christmas, you know, mm -hmm. visiting some friends, whatever. So here's, you know, little 10 year old me getting my Super Nintendo, getting Zelda. I'm, you know, vibrating with excitement. Ooh. And I'm told, like, okay, now we got to go pack up the car and go and leave. So I don't even get to play it yet won't be home for a couple of days. And I remember, you know, I, I took the instruction book with me and read it cover to cover in the car like six or seven times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, my mom was trying to reassure me. She's like, well, you know, they have kids too. Like they just had Christmas. So maybe they got a Super Nintendo also and you can play it there. And I'm like, okay, maybe we get there and they did not get a Super Nintendo. 
they still had an NES and they were really excited because they got a new NES game for Christmas too. They got Mick Kids, the McDonald's cartridge. Oh my God, that's hilarious. <laughs> so they're like, and, and they were so excited. They're like, oh, you can't, you got to come up and play Mick Kids with us. And I'm just standing there holding my Link to the Past instruction book with this look of defeat on my face. Like, oh my God, that's hilarious. Oh, <laughs> I start reading like right above your head at that moment. <laughs> Pretty much, I'm like, man, <laughs> this weekend's gonna suck, <laughs> right? Oh, it's funny. But you know, then I got home and played it, and then played it again, and then played it again, and it's mm-hmm. kind of been the trend for the last you know twenty five years or so. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you really you you hit on something there that um, is is kind of a fun memory as far as like for us you know old time retro gamers was you know when you went to the store with your parents and you bought a game, you picked it out and like the ride home, like you were just so excited and you're, you know, either reading the back of the box feverishly or you're reading through the instruction booklet like a hundred times and just the, the sheer amount of what ifs that were possible by uh, imagining what this game contained uh, for me was just, it was so exciting at the time because, you know, we really only had magazine screenshots to go by and, maybe the occasional commercial and something like that. So, you know, like for me, one of the biggest things on in retro games were like how they sounded. And especially like the first time that you plug the cartridge into the system, you know, what is the music like? What, are, what does the game sound like? And for me, like for especially Link to the Past, the, the first, you know, uh, rotating Triforce pieces and the piano music and the swell into the orchestral hit, you know, it just, it has such a wonderful feeling of adventure to it Mm -hmm. and then of course you start the game and you know you hear the the rain sound effects and you hear the music and the thunder and it just all comes together as like just this powerful feeling of you know this is going to be an amazing game to play yeah yeah i was going to say that and i i think think that you know the best word for this is you know it's an epic feeling intro Mm -hmm. um because you know the the Super Nintendo was pretty early at this point, and so we didn't have a whole lot to go on. And a lot of us, I think, at this point, were still riding the coattails of what we do from the NES, which mm. a lot of those games you know, may have had a decent story or been really fun to play, but there were very few of them that had you know, cinematics or you know, a whole lot of narrative. I mean, the Ninja Gaiden trilogy maybe be one of the exceptions. But so when this shows up and all of a sudden, this is completely different than everything we had seen. Um, Cause yeah, you start out, there's the rain. Um, you can hear the thunder. Like you said, you're going out talking to guards and they're like, Oh, you can't go this way because you know, the it's, it's late. You should go home. And it's like, this already feels like a real story being told, not a mm-hmm. programmed computer, you know? So <clears throat> the, that just original feeling like when you first get started and you're heading out, you have no weapon, you have no anything, you grabbed a lantern. It's like, I could almost picture this kid leaving his house in the rain, you know, soaked to death with a lantern trying to find this weird voice that's asking, you know, for help. And, mm-hmm. it's, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's an incredibly epic feeling. Yeah. Intro. And for, uh, for an intro to a game, I mean, it, it doesn't bog you down in tutorials or anything like that. I mean, it, nope like most games of this time, I mean, it just kind of expects you to just pick up the game and learn as you go. And I think that's the exciting part is, you know, you don't have to get bogged down in a bunch of tutorials and menus. You know, you can just walk outside and start exploring and testing the limits of where you can go. But what's so smart about this, and this is something that I think is lost in a lot of modern games, is that 
modern games, yeah, they're either going to give you the tutorial, which you know just is my biggest pet peeve in games, or it's so railroaded and so linear that you have no choice but just to go from point A to B to C to D. Mm. This is one, and like old games were really good at programming like this, where you felt like you had an open world to explore, mm-hmm. but it was very well controlled in making sure you got to the right place. Like the bush that you have to pick up to fall down so that you can go find your uncle. There's a subtle walkway that leads you there, whether you realize it or not. Mm-hmm. And there's just little hints that always keep you kind of going in the right direction. And it, it still keeps that illusion of freedom, you know, mm-hmm. and free choice. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it leads to um, a greater discovery, you know, when you do find something, because like you said, the hints are there, they're subtle, uh, but it, it also, the beauty of this game is that it, it sort of respects the player to discover things on their own and try things out. And I think that's one of the reasons why, it's so well designed is because they really, the designers took a lot of time to make sure that they got things right to, you know, to make sure that you, you felt good discovering things, you felt good solving puzzles. And I think it really comes through uh, just in the gameplay. Right. You know, and like you said, a lot of modern games are, are guilty of, uh, you know, sort of handholding and, and tutorials. And I think that's one of the other reasons why, I, I love Breath of the Wild so much is because it's a return to that form. It's just, you know, it puts you right on the plateau at the beginning. You can just do whatever you want. You can do anything in any order, you know, and it, it really feels like the older style Zelda games. Yeah, it does. Um, so going back real quick to what we said about how like epic this feels, I think one of my other first impressions and memories playing this was when you open the the inventory menu, I was... I remember being very, very surprised and overwhelmed by just how many options there were. And, you know, comparing this to older Zelda games, like all of a sudden I felt like you could just do so much. I mean, right off the bat, you can see you have a magic meter, you have your sword, there's different weapons, different equipment. You can push, pull, lift, swim. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just when you see all of those, like you don't have access to do it all yet, but it's like there's a little category for each one on that menu. And it's like, oh man, like this is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And it's, as you kind of grow with it, it, it really just kind of felt like, yeah, you can kind of do whatever you want here. Yeah. 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 And that's the, that's the best thing. And um, one of the things I really like about this style of game is, you know, as you acquire items and, and level up, well, I mean, you don't really level up, but um, as you get stronger uh, in the game, then you, you start to feel like, you know, this badass that can turn over everything in the game and explore every little thing and use every every type of item to see what the outcome is. Well, and each of those items you get makes you feel more accomplished because they they make sure that like all of the little things that um, you can't have, like the the heavier rocks that you need the Titan mitt to get. Like they don't, they don't wait and only put those in areas, you know, in the second half of the dark world, like they're right out of the gate. You know, you see them right away. You Mm -hmm. see things that you have to have the hammer right away. Um, So it, it makes it so that when you find one of these items later on, all of a sudden your brain just kind of explodes and thinking, Oh man, like I remember, Oh, there was this, I got to go back and check this. Oh, now I can finally do this. And it's, it's like letting you retrace things rather than just now I could just move forward and move forward and move forward. Mm-hmm. But so, you also don't have to do those things if you don't want to, which is nice. No, of course not. Yeah. If you wanted to just breeze through the game, you could. Now there's still a few things you have to, you know, kind of discover on your own, but for the most part, 
there's there's a freedom there and there's a feeling of being able to explore and really um you know just take your time and and turn over every facet of the game that you can find well and it, it does a good balance of making sure that like all of the items in the inventory like you don't need it all you need about half of it mm-hmm. um but of the items you do need half of them are ones you're going to find just by going through the narrative of the game you know they're the dungeon item or whatever but then there's still those other items that you have to go find elsewhere like the the bombos or the i'm sorry the, the quake medallion the ether medallion like mm-hmm. those are things that you're not going to find unless you go do some exploring but you can't get into the misery mire or turtle rock without them so right. it's not just a i'm just going to follow the you know main linear path and that'll get me through like it forces you to go explore a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting too, you know, like how you bring up with the medallions, for instance. I mean, they don't really seem that important at first. Um, I, I had the feeling that, you know, when I was playing it, because I it's been a long time since I've played through this game. And um, I remember getting the medallions as I was playing it this week and thinking, well, this doesn't really do a whole lot. I mean, I'm not going to use this in you know, uh, a scenario with enemies that much, but then you see the subtle symbols on the ground to tell you where to use them. And, you know, then it clicks. It's like, oh, that's really cool. Okay, I had to get this item, you know, to progress to open the dungeon or to get in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, there's only one item in the game that I can say, you know, no matter how many times I've played through it, I don't think I've ever actually used it. Um, And it's, it's one of the two canes, the canes of Brina Berna, I forget exactly how it's pronounced, but um, I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, it's the blue one, and yeah. it's just one of those items that I get it every time because I like the completionist, but it doesn't do anything. <laughs> no, uh-uh. kind of a joke item almost, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it yeah. could be useful, and it's like when we talked about, you know, uh, Simon's Quest. Like, depending on how you feel like using them, I guess it could be useful mm-hmm. to people. But yeah, for me, I've just never found a whole lot of use out of it. But um, yeah all right so what else to talk about um i love the 3d depth that this game does like Mm -hmm. it's still a bird's eye view overhead zelda game but as you're going through some of these dungeons and there's you know cliffs that you can jump down or staircases you go up like you still get a a feeling of three dimensions even though Mm -hmm. it's not you know actually there on the screen and i think that's a another way that this game just feels bigger than it is yeah yeah, I was trying to find, I had read an article, um, it might actually be in the um, the link I posted to Twitter the other day, the interview, which actually is working now, um, but it was a translated interview from um, around about 1992 uh, called The Men Who Made Zelda, and one of the things they were talking about, I'm always fascinated by the technical aspects, especially with like retro games, and um, for the Super Nintendo, they talked about how it was able to do multiple layers of of graphics and so that's why like when you pull the inventory menu down that's another layer that drops down uh, you know when you can see through the floor in the dungeon like there's a separate layer going on so you have these multiple layers kind of stacked on top of each other uh, which like you said it really gives a lot of depth to uh, you know what you're looking at whether it be um, there's the dungeon in the dark world that's all uh, you're walking underneath the platforms you can't see your character uh, things like that it's it's really neat how even though it's not a huge technical achievement on the Super NES, I guess it kind of is, but being such an early game, it's really cool how those layers are sort of used to add 
like you said, add depth to the uh, to the game. And especially even there's a couple of parts where there's light shining through from a window. Um, there's the dungeon in um, the one where you lead the the girl into oh, the thieves town. Yeah, yeah, um, into the light. I, just just little touches like that. It it really. Uh, like you said, it, it kind of adds more of a three-dimensional depth to the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the Ice Palace I always go back to is one where you know hey, you have to push a block through a hole and it falls down to another layer, which hardest uh, bothered the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it, too, but like I said, I haven't played this in so long. Um, the the Ice Palace I think was probably my least favorite dungeon just because yeah. of you know the the order in which things are required to move around. It's just kind of frustrating a little bit yeah but you know that's it it just adds to this like you know i keep going back to this word but it's like this epic feel and you know Mm -hmm. when once you get to later games the 3d is just kind of part of it so to have a game where everything's still 2d planes Mm -hmm. but it's like oh wait that was that thing that i pushed down before like oh or i realize i'm now standing when you look at my map i'm now over this other room so if i bomb the floor i'm going to fall into that one it's like that's a really cool accomplishment for something yeah. that's it, it goes back to the whole theory of they had so little to work with in mm-hmm. you know the early 90s here but they accomplished so much with it and yeah. i think that's one of the biggest thing that draws me to retro gaming is i love that these games like they could create these amazing experiences with so little mm-hmm. and they you had to rely on you know triggering the the gamer's imagination uh finding ways to add extra elements you know whether it's through sound or through um you know lighting effects like the little flashes or mode 7 graphics you know once they got you know later in the super nintendo era mm-hmm. uh, it, it's things like that that would make these games feel bigger because it was it was all smoke and mirrors it's all all tricks because they didn't actually have the technology to do it now they do like they can basically make live action movies so you know what's special about that like my imagination doesn't have to do anything it's all right there yeah well i think you know the other thing is that uh, when you're you're faced with limited resources or you know constrained resources that you tend to get more creative in how you approach things mm-hmm. and uh, especially considering the way that this game was designed um, it didn't take advantage of the entire color palette of the super nintendo so rather than use every single color you focus on a certain amount of them, which limits the amount of memory usage. Um, I think I had read somewhere that, um, and it's probably on Wikipedia is probably where I found it, but the uh, the dark world itself was just basically a, a layer of graphics that was uh, kind of laid on top of the light world. So these little tricks that are done to sort of conserve memory and to expand the game uh I, I think is really interesting and especially considering that at the time i think this was the when it came out i think it was the largest super nes cartridge uh, that had been released to date i think it was something around eight megabits and everything up to this point i think was about four megabits so uh really just adding to the the size and the scope of the game uh, i think it's really interesting considering like you said considering the time frame um, considering the limited resources and especially considering the price of of said games, if you you know adjust for inflation, I'm always shocked at looking at how much a Super Nintendo game cost back in the early '90s. Adjusting it for inflation today and thinking, wow, I was really lucky to have a couple of games back then. Considering I know. yeah, that they approximate would go for about a hundred and some dollars now. Yep, 
So, yeah, and and that goes back to my you know statement I've said before of like when we were kids, we didn't have hundreds and hundreds of games you know at our library. We would maybe if we were lucky get two or three a year. It's mm-hmm. you know, a, a birthday present, a Christmas present, and maybe over the course of the year you'd save up enough to do it. Yeah. And you know, yeah, they were still fifty dollars games, but that was fifty dollars twenty five thirty years ago. Like, sure. You, how many eight-year-olds do you know now walking around with hundred bucks in their wallet? Like it's well, it's a different time. But... <laughs> no, or you know, um, like if I remember, like you would go to like KB Toys, and KB Toys would have like you know, here's here's a bargain bin of games at like nineteen ninety nine, and well, half of them ended up being crap. But um, incidentally, on a side note, it's kind of fun to go back and and look at. You can find a lot of um the old ads for like kb toys and toys r us and children's palace online uh-huh. with a lot of like the super nintendo games advertised and things like that and it's just you know it blows my mind like i was so excited for street fighter 2 on the super nes and it's like i paid i think i saved up for it and i paid 74.99 that was the launch price of vanilla street fighter 2 just that for inflation that's insane and then a year yeah. later street fighter 2 turbo so but yeah Cap- capcom was always good at getting our money <laughs> they still are yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, but no, I don't want to get sidetracked all, but I, I think, I guess for what I'm trying to say is, um, you know, for the suggested retail price of forty nine ninety nine for Link to the Past, I think you really got your money's worth with this game. Yeah. And I mean, like, like we said, it all comes down to, they had several little tricks to make it even longer. Um, one of them that I loved was compared to older Zelda games. They, you, you still, you know, in started with your three heart containers, you're mm-hmm. going to get one for every dungeon you completed which there were, you know, the three in the light world, seven in the dark world. So there's another 10. You get one for um, basically saving Zelda at the very beginning. So there's 11, you're up to 14. There's still six more to get. Mm-hmm. And rather than just having six heart containers hidden out there, they broke them into quarters. So now there's 24 pieces that you've got to go find. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you think about it that way, it's like that really increases the amount of exploration that you have to go do. It's not just here's six things, go find them. They're out there somewhere. No, go find all 24 of them. Like it's, that adds a lot of length to your, your gameplay. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even for me playing through it a couple of times this last week, I remember where most of them are, but I mean, even I was struggling and thinking like, there's always one that I forget and it's never the same one, but there's always going to be one that's like, where the hell was that last one? And it's, it's fun because there's so many, it mm-hmm. just, you know, in, increases your, your, you're, you get your money's worth, I guess, is the best way to put that. But Yeah, and there's so many of them that you know you can see, but you can't easily get to, and then you have to try to figure out, okay, do I go into the dark world first? Do I move over here and tra- teleport back? And uh, there's a lot of fun things that you can do to kind of uh, discover those things. Okay, so any other like really great things you want to say before I get to my one or two tiny little nitpicks? I do have, yeah, I do have a few things, and I was... Um, you know, kind of just noting some stuff as I was playing um, over the past week. And it's just kind of interesting, I guess, uh, revisiting the game. I, my goal for playing through it this uh, past week was, you know, to sort of play through it blindly because it's been, it's been years since I played through the whole game. And I remember parts of it, but not everything. So I wanted to play through it just uh, using really nothing but the instruction manual and the included hint book that came with the original box copy. And it's interesting because as I was playing, I was kind of just kind of taking notes as far as uh, different things that I liked and that I didn't like and things like that. Um, 
the one that always gets me, and I think it, it always has, even as a kid, was the sort of side quest where um, you have to dig up the flute for the um, for the kid in the forest. Okay. Um, and how you know you go back into the light world and you find the flute and he, you know he buried it and you take it back and you play that song for him and then he turns into a tree and just kind of uh, disappears and it still makes me sad. I guess to this day, I guess it always did, but yep. Uh, it's, just, it's interesting how just a minor little side quest like that is is told in an emotional sort of way, I suppose. Did you ever go back to Kakariko Village and play it for his dad? No, I didn't. There's in the, um, I guess it's the milk bar, but it's, mm-hmm. the, it's the really long building that you can sneak into the back and get one of the bottles. The guy who's just kind of sitting on the floor in the bottom right corner is that kid's dad. Okay. And if you go back in there and talk to him, he just kind of mumbles. But if you go in there and play the flute, um, you know, in, in the room, he kind of like perks up and looks at him and, you know, has this yet another little kind of tear jerking, sad moment for an eight or you know, 16 bit game. But yeah, try that sometime. <laughs> I sort of remember that now. And that's, that's again, the, the enjoyable thing for me is playing through this game after so many years is, you know, not just outright spoiling myself on all these things, but, you know, sort of remembering like, Oh my gosh, I totally forgot about that. Or that was awesome when that happened. And um, you know, that was the other, one of the other beauties of this game is that, you know, as you discovered things and you talked with your friends that had played it as well, you know, there was a, uh, a great sense of discovery, I guess, as far as what people found and what, um, you know, what there was to the game. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, you know, like we talked about the, uh, the ice dungeon I found was to be really annoying, I guess, on this playthrough. <laughs> yeah. Um, and especially with the switches and the blocks. And then I was looking through the little hint book that came with it. And there's, um, there's a specific part in there that talks about that part with pushing the blocks through the floor and everything. And I was thinking to myself, you know, you know, it's really bad when the, um, the hint is actually included in the hint book. It's almost like they were able to, you know, figure out based on maybe the play testers were getting really upset at that part. And they thought, well, we better put a little tidbit in the hint book. <laughs> but I just, I kept going back and forth. I'm like, I cannot get, I cannot figure out, you know, how to get this path, you know, cleared properly, but I don't know. Kind of interesting. Um, but otherwise, I mean, just, just playing through it, uh, it's just, there's little things here and there that I forgot as I was, and as I was playing it, then I started to kind of remember. And it's just cool. I mean, because like we said, there's, the game sort of encourages you to try different things and explore different things. And it doesn't really outli- outright tell you, hey, go do this and, and this is how you do it. But um, like, for example, I forgot that you use the flute to get into the swamp in the dark world. And when I remembered how to do that, it's like, you know, like a light bulb turned on. I'm like, oh, shit, that's right. I forgot. This is how you do it. Uh, just cool stuff like that. So. Yeah, I hadn't played in probably uh, maybe two, three years. And I, I did the same thing. Like, I, I've gone on record on here before saying it, and I'm sure I'll say it again. But, like, I'm very much against walkthroughs and, you know, anything mm-hmm. like that. Like, I want to discover the game for myself and figure out what I can and, you know, see what the game offers me. And if, if there's things that I don't find, then, well, that's okay. And yeah. so this time through, I actually played it through twice um, in preparation for the show. The first time was, like you said, completely blind, just seeing what I could do and was impressed because my goal was, you know, I, I knew that I had played it enough that I'd be able to just get through the story, but I wanted to see if I could still find full inventory, every heart container, and also you know, the full bomb arrow and magic upgrades. And mm. I did it. And I was really, really surprised that I was still able to get a hundred percent completion based nice. on 
memory. Yeah. Um, and so then I decided to play a second game where, because the, the game tracks like how many times you died. And mm-hmm. I think that time I got like, I don't know, 17 deaths or something. And I was like, I wonder if it's possible to get, you know, a perfect game where 100% completion, all items, all upgrades, mm-hmm. but no deaths. And <laughs> the damn thing was I almost did it, mm-hmm. but but I was banking on the fact that if you have a fairy in a bottle and you die, that doesn't count against you. And I was wrong. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, that, that okay. counts even so though the fairy counts. brought you back. Yep. So I still only died five times through the whole game, but then when I when I finished it, I was excited, and I, the end of credits start ticking through, and it's like, total games played five. I'm like, oh, sons of bitches. <laughs> That's fine. So when, one of these days, you, be another goal for me is try to do that. But Yeah, I think you hit on something too, and um, especially looking at uh, you know kind of the, the speedrunning culture today and the way that you know, we can get on and, and watch people play games in different ways and, and do different things. I think um, I think Link to the Past is sort of one of the the big ones I remember as being kind of one of the first games that you could you could do a run through like that, or you could try to do um, you know different things and see how how many um, ways that you could finish the game, which leads to more replayability, of course. Oh yeah, for sure. So. Um, and especially considering there's so many upgrades that aren't necessary, but they do sure. help, like you yeah. know, getting your magic meter cut in half and um, the fountain of happiness where you could just keep throwing in money. Like you don't really need the extra bombs or arrows, but mm-hmm. I mean, you could max out at 50 bombs and 70 arrows. It's like when you do that, like what else do you have to spend money on if you've already got the flippers? Yeah. And it's just kind of one of those things where once you get those maxed out, you never need to worry about an arrow or a bomb ever again it's no so um okay well i feel like i hate to do it but i do have to make a couple minor little gripes about the game that's fine Um, nobody's perfect so well eh, we'll we'll get to my perfect game there is one (laughs) oh really um no and the two the two criticisms i have of this are actually pretty minor and i'll say right off the bat one of them i fully admit is not a fair criticism so um but the the one that I do think is fair is I was I've always been disappointed in this game just in the um I, I guess that I feel like all of the bosses are just kind of blah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple that are cool. I think the Helmasar King, which is in the Palace of Darkness, is awesome. Uh-huh. Um, and I love the Armos Knights and Land Mullas in the Eastern Palace and Desert Palace just because they're basically modernizations of old NES Zelda game uh, enemies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ganon was pretty cool in this one, but a lot of the others, I just, I think they're completely, you know, you could write them off. They're just nothing. Um, like the, the jello mold with eyeballs in it. Yeah. And it's like, I kind of felt like they ran out of ideas and most of the monsters in this game are either some form of a snake or some form of a giant eyeball with little eyeballs around it. Mm-hmm. Because the swamp palace octopus thing is a big one eyed octopus with things floating around it or the, mm-hmm cold stare and ice palace like it's three big frozen eyeballs that come out like there's just so many like snakes and eyeballs and i just i never found that any of them were really memorable like they're just kind of oh yeah here's this thing i gotta fight and then yeah that's it yeah I, I felt like that was zelda 2 as well though it's like you know you got horse guy and then you have the old man knight and um i don't know i can't even remember some of them it was like the random wizard and i don't know just enemies to be enemies, I guess. I don't yeah. Know. So. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah. I mean, a couple of them stood out. Like I said, I think Aghanim is really neat. Like the, mm-hmm. as a as a character and as a villain, that's 
not Ganon, but still just as menacing. Like I always thought he was cool. Um, yeah. yeah. I think that even that kind of starts the, the way that you fight Agnum where you, you bounce the attacks back at him. I think that's kind of the first time that, that the series starts that. And uh-huh. you see that in later games as well as ways to, uh, you know, to fight a particular enemy and that you have to bounce their attacks back at them. Although in, interesting. in any other Zelda game, can you do it with a bug catching net? No, no. <laughs> but you can't hear. <laughs> yeah. That'll be your next place through there. No deaths, bug catching net only. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, my o- other criticism of the game, and this is the one that I admit is not fair, and I say that because if you're going to evaluate a game, book, movie, whatever, it's only fair to criticize it if you're looking at just that item on its own and not comparing it to other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was a kid, I mean, we all had friends who were super nerds and, you know, we all had the friend who knew every detail about the Star Wars universe or who could tell you everything about comic book characters. Mine was, I was the Hyrule nerd and okay. the, the version of Hyrule that was created from like 87 to 89. Mm-hmm. So like the two NES games, the cartoon, uh, there were a couple of books that came out like even some Captain N episodes, like that version of Hyrule was, you know, my nerd heaven. Okay. And I remember when I was, you know, about 10 and I learned that there was Zelda three coming out and it was for the super Nintendo. Like my brain just melted (laughs) and I couldn't wait to get another game that was going to tell me even more of my Zelda story. And then it came out and I remember just being like almost heartbroken when I realized like, this is actually just a remake or a reimagining and it's not actually the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's a different Hyrule. It's a different link. It's a different Zelda. Like as I'm playing it and it's like, wait, link doesn't have an uncle. Wait, why doesn't link pick up his magic sword? He has it by now. Like mm-hmm. you know, links meeting Zelda for the first time. Like, no, they already know it. Like, and it's just like, all of this was just kind of a, it's still a great game on its own, but mm-hmm. 10 year old me was really, really disappointed that it was, a remake and that's the that's the way the zelda franchise has been ever since and now they're kind of saying like oh yeah it's like reincarnations of link and zelda and ganon whatever and it's like that's fine if that's what you want to do i kind of think that's a cop out but like i really wanted more from the same zelda universe and it was just kind of a kind of a letdown for me that it wasn't and it's something that i've never quite gotten over because every time i play this it's like eh, but it's not the hyrule that i really like so not, not a fair criticism. I know it's very subjective and you know purely from my standpoint, but it's it's always just been a little hang up with me. Huh. All right. See, I guess it never really bothered me at this point because um, just I I knew that the Zelda games were fun and enjoyable on their own, and they had you know like Hyrule and there was uh, Ganon, there was Link, and there was Zelda. But um, it never really bothered me too much because I never really noticed that there was a cohesive storyline, and I think even throughout the series there's never really been like a full on like, okay, this is the storyline. I mean, like you said, it's kind of been shoehorned in over the years and things have, you know, tried to try to retrofit things in like, Oh, there's a timeline and this and that. And it's like, I, it doesn't really bother me too much. Um, really that there's not a lot of cohesiveness because it's kind of like the, it's like the James Bond series of films. I mean, there's obviously they're not a cohesive storyline of, of films you know they're each kind of their own thing and i think that's what makes the zelda games enjoyable for me at least is that you know yeah they're legends or they're you know they're stories and they may not all 
gel because they may not all be accurate, but um, I think that's kind of to the detriment of the series sometimes when it tries to go back and tie things together and say, oh, this is how this happened. And, you know, these two are destined for, you know, every generation and things like that. I, I right. guess um, Skyward Sword was kind of guilty of that. I like the gameplay of that game, but I think that the story is a bit muddled and confusing because there's too many things that they're trying to tie together. Yeah. And I mean, other franchises did the same thing, but they, you know, took a much looser approach to it. Like Castlevania just said, okay, every hundred years, Dracula's coming back. So Mm -hmm. whatever hero killed him last time, well, he's long dead. So here's another Belma Um, or Mario. Like, yeah. Okay. Bowser kidnaps the princess all the damn time. And Mario has to go save him. Like, no no big deal like we don't need a chronology it's just mm-hmm. it happens a lot right and you know if zelda had admitted that at, up front like we're just going to keep retelling a similar story it happens to have characters that are named the same mm-hmm. i think that would be fine and you know it's, it was just the idea of like i really expected to see more of the same characters that i had already fallen in love with and sure. then it just it just wasn't but i always i always had to laugh at, at link's uncle though because it's like he goes out, he's like, I'm going out, you know, stay home and whatever. And then you go into the, um, the Hyrule Castle sewers and like, he's right there in the first section. And I always kind of laughed, like, did he just like fall into the hole and like just break his leg and that was it? Yeah. It's a, it's a sprained ankle is all. <laughs> leave him to die. I mean, <laughs> that always kind of bothered me as a kid. It's like, wait, really? You didn't do shit. Like you just, <laughs> you just fell into this hole and waited for me to show up. I just take your shit and you just rot. I don't know. Well, it, it wasn't that he was actually the chosen hero. It's just that his house was closest to the castle. So, you know, he got there first. <laughs> That's funny. Um, okay. So I, I do have to know, because I think that, you know, most people have an opinion of this. You've said what your least favorite dungeon is, but I'm guessing you have a favorite or a favorite boss. Um. You know, nothing really stands out to me as far as being, like, my absolute favorite. Um, I've always, I always enjoyed the uh, Desert Palace in the, okay. in the Light World because it was, it was cool that you could go outside of the dungeon. Like, there were, like, three different entrances and, uh, you know, it was kind of like, here's a dungeon that's not, like, your traditional right. one. You know, there's, like, there's sand and there's things popping out of the ground and things like that. Skull uh, Skull Woods played with that even more when you got mm-hmm. there. Like, there's like you know 15 different entrances there, which is basically the whole challenge of it. But, yeah, and uh, that was cool too. That was a neat one where you start playing with sort of the conventions of okay, where is the dungeon? Oh wait, the entire the entire Lost Woods is the dungeon. Right, right. That. So that was a cool one too. Um, the Turtle Rock dungeon where I um, got to in this playthrough that was always a fun one too. Uh, just because it was like you were going through the, you know, sort of the, the, the bottom of the mountain, I guess, with the lava underneath, uh, things like that. So I don't know. I don't really have a specific favorite. I enjoy a lot of them, except for the ice palace. I'm just not a, <laughs> I'm not a fan of ice levels in old games because I think that they're uh, played out and I hate having to move my character around like he's wearing ice skates. Uh, if you want a little hint that kind of helps you, get through that a little bit better this didn't quite make my list of tips and tricks but um if you use the hook shot in the ice palace mm-hmm. not only is it a great way to kill those um most of the enemies in there in one hit I but also yeah but like if you're skidding and you throw the hook shot out like even if it doesn't hit anything the fact that you throw it through it out it'll stop you 
Really? So it's a it's a quick way to center yourself. So if you're about to skid past a door, throw the hook shot at the door, and it'll stop you. And now you can just go straight. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, it makes it huh. it makes it very easy to get around okay. the slipperiness. Because yeah, I agree with you that slipping and sliding is annoying. Um, right. That's by far the least fun dungeon because it's even if you know exactly how to get through it there's still you ha- you have to loop back on yourself at least once to get right. through the whole thing and it's just like Which that's not, just obnoxious not entirely obvious and it it starts you start you know kind of just getting frustrated where it's like okay i know that i have to do something different here but you know i've gone through this loop of so many rooms on two different levels that i'm kind of getting confused as to where i'm going so and every time i play through it it's like i prep myself for that one just knowing it's going to be a pain in my ass and you know, mm-hmm. the, the two playthroughs I did this week, second time, obviously, I was fine because I had just done it a couple days before. But yeah. first time, yep, got stuck there, too. Like, it happens mm-hmm. almost yep. every time without fail. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, personally, I love Ganon's Tower. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, and Misery Meyer, I think, is just a ton of fun. I think it's a great aesthetic. Um, it's got the Wizrobes, which are my favorite enemy from the Zelda franchise. Mm. I, don't, I don't know why. I just think they're adorable and fun. Mm-hmm. Um so those are great. And I think that the the first dungeon in each of the two worlds, so the Eastern Palace and the Palace of Darkness, mm-hmm. are just perfect examples of just really, really well-built dungeons. Yeah. They're 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 big, but they're not overwhelming. And they're laid out smart enough that like you end up if you follow the right trajectory, you find the keys kind of right when you need to, you mm-hmm. get through the doors you need to, and you kind of loop your way around and kind of do figure eights and end up where you need to go. But by the time you're done, you've covered the whole thing and it just feels very you know, massive, but satisfying. So mm-hmm. I think anybody who's programming games like now as a hobby, those are two great examples of ways to kind of like see how it's done right. There's, there's no wasted space, I guess is a better no. way to say that. No, there's no filler. And another thing I was going to add um, that I enjoy with the dungeon crawling aspect of this one is the music, and specifically the dungeon music, because um, it's very ominous mm-hmm. and uh, kind of creepy, which is cool. And I just I'm I love the orchestral sound of the Super NES, especially when it's used right. Yes, I think um, there's so many examples of the music in this game as being phenomenal, uh, whether it be the the dungeon music or one of my personal favorites, which is like sort of just the, the theme of the dark world, uh, that sort of adventurous kind of theme that's playing as you're standing on top of the, you know, the pyramid and there's the, uh, the sunset in the distance and the music is playing. It's like, it's such a adventure filled ominous feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it gets even more dark when you finally get to death mountain in the dark world. Yes. Yeah. Which, I think it's fun because you've been to death mountain in the light world. And it's like, okay, this is, there's big boulders falling at me and there's, you know, monsters up here that are tougher than I thought, but it's just another area of the game. Mm-hmm. Get there in the dark world. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh shit just got real. <laughs> yeah. There's like this creepy wind noise. There's, you know, uh, some dissonant tones in the background. And then there's these weird creatures walking around and, um, you don't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. So. Um, okay, so every episode we usually try to talk about the differences between you know Famicom and uh, uh, Nintendo system. And honestly, in this case, there really isn't much worth talking about. No. Um, there, there were some differences, but everything that I could find was just like 
uh, graphical. So like mm -hmm. the fonts are different. They might put ellipses in different places, but you know, different punctuation, but otherwise the gameplay is from what I could find mm -hmm. notice identical. Yeah. I found the same thing really where it's just the text itself is the only difference. I mean, the game itself is a hundred percent the same, no matter which one you're playing. So, so no real advantage to going and finding yourself a, you know, super Famicom version of it. You can I mean, stick, stick unless, to the one you already own, maybe. Unless you want, um, you know, just the, I don't know, the the different cartridge just to have it. Um, I don't think it's terribly expensive, but there's not really. I don't see a, a reason to to go out and specifically own it. No, no, there. Yeah, you're not going to get a different gameplay experience, but no. collectors, you know, no. for sure, but. Um, okay. Well, anything else you want to discuss about the game before we get into tips and tricks or, I mean, I could sit here for hours and discuss all kinds of stuff about this game, but uh, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll, I'll curtail some of that, but uh, no, I, I think it's, it's still one of my favorite Zelda games. And uh, I think, you know, the combination of the music, the gameplay, the puzzle solving, and just the adventurous aspect, I think is still uh, leads it to, to have sort of a timeless quality. It. it may not be the most difficult Zelda game, but it is really fun. Yeah, yeah, it's incredibly well built. Um, I guess if I had to make a third minor criticism of it is that the world does feel very small. Mm -hmm. um, it's very dense, and like everywhere you go, there's tons and tons of stuff. Like it's the kind of thing where I would tell people if if you've never played this before and you're kind of inspired by our conversation and want to go dig it out, I mean, look under every rock, push every boulder you know bomb every wall like there's there's stuff everywhere mm -hmm. um so it's it's a very dense game but yeah i mean in general the world is is tiny like you can go from one corner to the other in a couple of minutes and it's it, it's not about the space or the sprawling landscape it's just very very tightly packed with a lot of stuff so yeah it does feel significantly smaller than the original zelda Mm -hmm. But like yeah. said, there's more, I think there's more things to do on every screen uh, versus like, you know, maybe one or two secrets. Right. The screen on, on the original. All right, let's get into this then. Tips and tricks. So tips and tricks this week, I found, I've, I've been trying to keep this down to about, you know, maybe the five best ones that I can come up with. And I was actually kind of struggling with this because I think that a lot of the tricks that you could have in this game are ones that, might just can be common knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, I was trying to think of this, some things that I do in the game that you know help me get through it a little bit quicker, a little bit easier. Uh, one of them is that I think everybody who's played this has discovered that there are obviously two great fairies who will upgrade some of your equipment if you throw you know certain things in, like boomerangs, swords, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, that's a great way to get free magic potions. Uh, sure. If you throw an empty bottle in, she will hand it back to you filled with the green potion. Okay. Um, so you never have to actually buy one of those. And depending on how much you use some of the magic items, you know, it could be very nice to have a quick refill of that. So mm. don't, don't spend money on it. Just throw your bottles at a fairy. Huh. Um, another trick that I use when I play this, I think one of the most frustrating rooms that you can find in the game are there's a few different dungeons where you have a lot of the floor tiles just start, you know, pulling up and flying at you. Mm -hmm. Um, it can be difficult to get past those, especially in some of the early dungeons where you don't have a whole lot of heart containers yet. If you stand against one of the walls with your back to the wall and just charge your sword, like you were going to do the spin attack, so it's just kind of holding out, pointed straight in front of you, mm -hmm. the tiles will just run straight into the sword and you won't get hit by a single one of them. 
Huh. Um, that you have to kind of re- one of those? Yes. You need really? to recharge it between each tile and occasionally kind of adjust yourself so that you're you know in line so that the tile comes straight at you rather than hitting you from the side but hmm. yeah that, that way you don't have to time your sword swing to hit the tile it'll just run into your sword and die um but yeah you can get through those rooms very easily that way huh. Never knew that. um third one that i got this is one that i had played through it several times before i had discovered and kind of goes back to what we were saying that you know the game kind of leads you down the most logical linear route but you can deviate and there are two times where I would say you definitely should. Um, after you get to the Dark World, you now have the Master Sword, and there's two more sword upgrades, the Tempered Sword and the Golden Sword. You can get both of those much earlier than they intend for you to. Hmm. Um, the Tempered Sword you can't have until after you complete the fourth dungeon, because you need the Titan's Mitt to rescue the um, Blacksmith's partner. Mm-hmm. And the Golden Sword, you need the Giant Bomb, and then you can bomb to get the Great Fairy at the Pyramid. But you can actually go straight after you finish the Palace of Darkness, go to the Thieves' Hideout right away before you do the Swamp Palace and before you do uh, the Dark Woods. Mm-hmm. You can go ahead and take that dungeon out, get the Titan Mitt, go get your Tempered Sword. Now you have it for basically the duration of the Dark World. Oh, um, plus, just having the Titan Mitt makes things a lot easier you know, mm-hmm. for Biden Heart containers and that. Mm-hmm. And um, to get the Golden Sword, that giant bomb actually shows up after you finish the... Um, Misery Mire. Mm-hmm. So you can get the Golden Sword as early as your way on your way to Turtle Rock before you go there and to Ganon's Tower. Hmm. I'll have to try that on the next playthrough. Yeah. So you can get those a little bit early. It just kind of helps make some of those more challenging dungeons a little easier. Yeah. Uh, next one I found, and this would be kind of appropriate for you if you're in Turtle Rock right now, getting ready to go to Ganon's Tower. There are several rooms where it's, it can be very frustrating. There's like these eyeballs on the wall that shoot mm-hmm. lasers at you. Yeah. Uh, you can use basically the sword charging technique to keep those from shooting at you. I remember uh, doing that. Is that like, are you talking about like moonwalking backwards? Yeah. So yeah. It, it works two different ways. Once you have the mirror shield, you can just aim yourself so that your shield's held toward them and then just walk that way. Because once your sword's charged, you won't turn when you move. You'll either like stray for moonwalk. Yeah. Right. Um, but some of them like will only shoot you if you're facing right at them or facing to the side or facing the back. Mm-hmm. So if you just kind of position yourself in the way that they won't shoot you, charge your sword, then you can move straight toward them and they won't shoot you at all. I do remember that. Uh, and then the last one that I had is one that I discovered and it's very useful. There's a couple of places, I think in, um, Turtle Rock and Ganon's Tower both, where there's like invisible walkways, mm-hmm. and you can you can light it up if if there's a torch you can you know light the torch and that illuminates it. But there's a couple where it's either hard to get to the torch, um, or I think there's even a couple where there is no torch in the room. If you use the Ether Medallion mm-hmm. for a second while that's going off and the lightning striking, it will illuminate the whole room and the the tile background will show up. Huh. So, for a split second, you can see it, and as long as you can remember where you're going, it gives you a quick peek at where to go. So, oh, that's have, have enough magic, and then just kind of use ether three or four times as you're going through the room, and you'll be able to get through there without having to light the torch. Nice. So, well, um, speaking of secrets, um, I wanted to take a minute and talk about the uh, the the secretive fabled Chris Houlihan room. Oh yeah, uh, I was going to ask you. Um, were you familiar with this at all? Uh, playing through it as a kid, did you ever discover it by accident, or uh, you know? You... I I knew I knew about it, but probably not until like 
high school, college, somewhere in there is when I first learned about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a kid, I had no idea. And mm-hmm. even in college, it was one of those things. I think a friend of mine said like, oh, did you know this was in here? And he like told me the story and then showed me right where to find it. And mm-hmm. so I saw it, but that it was such a fleeting thing that even on these last two playthroughs I did this week, you know, it was 100% completion. I found every item, you know, no stone unturned, yet I still did not find that room both times. So I was like, I know it's here, but it's hidden well enough that I'm not finding it on 100% playthroughs. So yeah, well, it's it's interesting, too. Um, and for, you know, anyone who's probably not too familiar with it. So um, years ago, in Nintendo Power, there was a contest um, when Final Fantasy was out. And um, if I remember right, it was the contest where um, you had to find Warmech, which was like a one in 100 chance or something like that of appearing on this bridge. And if you, you know, if you discovered Warmech, if you took a picture and sent it into Nintendo Power, then one lucky winner would have their name, you know, featured in a game, um, you know, somewhere down the line. So years went by and nobody knew anything about it, I guess. Nobody heard anything about it. And then... Um, I remember discovering this room just by accident sometimes, you know, and there's like all these rupees and you go up and you think you click the thing and it just says, my name is Chris Houlihan. Keep this a secret. And you think, well, that's weird. Who is this? And then doing some research for the game, then I delved into it a little bit more and found that, you know, Chris Houlihan was the winner of the contest, um, had his name put in Zelda, but was one of those sort of urban legends where not really many people knew how to trigger it. And digging into it, I, it was actually really interesting. So that room itself is sort of a glitch recovery system that the game employs. So if, for some reason, if the game can't determine where you're going to go next from one screen to another, it will put you in the Chris Houlihan room and you'll collect the rupees. And then as you exit the room, you'll start at uh, your house again. Right. And the way that I was able to trigger it, I think the easiest way to do it is if you're in the graveyard and you push the grave so that way there's the, um, it's the one in the upper left where you can get into, instead of just walking into the grave, what I'll do is I'll turn around, I'll, I'll put my back to the grave and I'll set a bomb and I'll blow myself up and fall into the hole backwards. And that usually triggers the room. Yeah. That's after you told me that I went and did it and I'm like, Oh yeah, no shit. There it is. But yeah. So uh, I think it's kind of interesting for the, again, for this time period that, um, you know, that was sort of employed as a crash prevention feature. So, uh, you know, the game never crashes on you if you try to glitch it, but it instead sends you to this secret room where, you know, the contest winner, his name is, you know, emblazoned. Yeah. Where, you know, he probably told his friends like, oh, I'm in Zelda. And they're like, bullshit, you're not in there. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like I probably person. told my friends I was in Zelda. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. It's just a cool bit of history I like. Well, and it's it's funny to hear that too because I re- I knew that it was a contest, but I didn't know which one. But I remember the Final Fantasy contest in Nintendo mm-hmm. Power, and I think that like they had already announced that there was a winner when I got that issue, and I was like, oh damn it! Like I was going to try to go complete yeah. that because and I don't think they ever said you know oh this guy won and this is the game he's going to be in. I yeah. remember seeing that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, that that's cool that they actually did something with that because I felt like a lot of the Nintendo Power contests just kind of fell through. Yeah. I I did one when um, Super Mario All Stars came out and they had a thing. It's like, can you actually beat uh, Super Mario Brothers the Lost Level? And if you take a picture of you getting past Bowser in 
stage D4, which is there's like 16 levels after 8-4. And right. it's like, take a picture of yourself beating D4 and we'll like send you a badge or something. It's like, I did it. I think I still have the photo somewhere, but never got my damn badge. But <laughs> Bastards. I know, right? Come on. Try, I gave him so much money. Down, whatever company he's working at now. Give me my prize, <laughs> damn it. Give me one of them jackets you were always wearing. Oh, I want one of those. <laughs> you probably got him. I, I lost my membership card. I don't think they're going to honor it. But I still have mine. I found mine a while back. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I don't have um, a whole lot more to say here. I think that this goes without saying that this is definitely one of the classics of retro gaming. I mean, if you're yeah. if yeah. you're a Nintendo fan, I can't see how there's any way that you didn't play this. Um, sure. I mean, if you're a retro gaming fan, even if you spanned all systems, like this is just. I mean, for the Legend of Zelda franchise, for whatever it has become now, whether you're a fan or not, uh, I think it's a safe assumption that, you know, the original trilogy is, you know, made of gold mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the, the sacred trilogy, I guess, of video games right there. So it's I, I would have a hard time believing that there's any gaming fan out there unless you were, you know, born within the last 20 years that is not extremely familiar with this game. Sure. Um, and even if not, I think um, there's there's so many indie games now that that owe their existence to uh, Link to the Past and to Zelda games in general. That even if you haven't played Link to the Past, but you might have played, you know, Binding of Isaac or um, Hyperlight Drifter or um, you know any of these uh, indie games in the last probably five six years that sort of owe their um, you know, their existence to Zelda games. I, if you haven't played Link to the Past, you know, I really would encourage you to check it out because it, it is an amazing game. It still still holds up to this day, I believe. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I would take what you just said a step further and say that, you know, the kind of modern generation of gamers that, you know, was born with, you know, what I call the the Pokemon Final Fantasy VII Ocarina of Time generation. Mm. Um, one of the things that a lot of them don't, realize and i've said this and i can't believe that there aren't more people saying this but like ocarina of time was when you really look at it a remake of link to the past um just having time travel instead of going from a light world to the dark world but Mm -hmm. think about the plot points of both games you're telling the exact same story yeah so if you like if you like ocarina of time guess what it was already done once on the super nintendo and you owe it to yourself to go back and try it yeah oh yeah absolutely so Alrighty. Well, I think uh, we got some big shoes to fill now in terms of we set the bar pretty high here in uh, episode three. So that's okay. There's there's thousands of games that we can still talk about, and you know there's going to be big titles that we're going to discuss, and there's going to be some hidden gems that we're going to discuss too. I'm excited. Um, you know, I I would rather talk about the big exciting games, you know, when we can, rather than say, oh, we're going to do this down the road. You know, let's just jump right in. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that's why we're here. So we enjoy talking about games, and we're going to talk about big games. We're going to talk about little games. So next week's or next episode's is going to be a perfect one, and I'm not going to spoil it yet. But it's a game that uh, I'm discovering for the first time, starting tomorrow. So Excellent. okay, I'll be I'll be really curious to hear your impressions because uh, <laughs> it's it's one that um, you know, growing up that I always wanted to play, and I didn't until uh, much later down the road. And then got into it, really enjoyed it, still enjoy it to this day. So, um, you know, and that's that's why I like doing the show is, you know, we're we're we've got a good mix of nostalgia and uh, first impressions. Yeah, I agree. 
So. All righty. Well, I think that just about wraps up this one. So I would say from Graveyard Duck, I'm Scott. And I'm Wes. And be sure to hold reset when you turn off the power so you don't lose your save. Game over.